Chapter 11 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 11 How far that little candle throws its beam, so shines a good deed in a naughty world. Shakespeare from the same to the same, December 29th. Behold me writing to you on robe de nuit and nightcap. It is near midnight, but the Liverpool coal with which my little grate has lately been replenished blazed so invitingly that I could not withdraw myself from the genial influence of its warmth. Then the cold wind that shook the window-panes seemed with a hoarse voice to cry out, Enjoy thy comforts, not all possess them. To thy hearth I find no entrance, but the windows and doors of many a wretched hovel have not barred me out as have thine. This was not all, for the scenes through which I had passed this afternoon, continually rising before me banished sleep, and I could think of no relief for my burdened mind but that which flows from my pen as it darkens the paper destined for your eye alone, and therefore behold me ensconced in a cushioned armchair, defying the approach of slumber and midnight at my secretary. I had hardly seated myself at the dinner-table to-day when a slip of paper was placed in my hands, and I with difficulty deciphered the following lines hastily scrawled with a pencil. Dear Miss Catherine, do not linger in the parlour when you have dined. I have something especial to say to you. I am upstairs, I am not alone, and I hope you will not be surprised by the appearance of so strange a visitor as the one I bring. Yours in haste, Ellen. I should not have been a daughter of Eve and an heir to curiosity if these unsatisfactory lines had not destroyed my appetite. I immediately discovered that I was not hungry and withdrew. In my chamber I found Ellen anxiously expecting my appearance. On looking round the room in quest of the visitor whom she mentioned, I beheld a little girl, shivering over the fire and stretching out her benumbed and purple fingers until they came almost in contact with the blaze. The child might have been nine years of age, but suffering and want had given to her sharp and pinched features an expression which was suitable to one much older while the underdeveloped delicacy of her form bespoke her to still be in infancy. Her feet were bare, her little feeble limbs were covered in rags, rags that had long been strangers to the purifying properties of yellow soap and the sparkling croton. I never remember to have seen the countenance of a child upon which premature misery was so strongly depicted. Even the keen winter air had failed to summon a shade of color to her wan face. Her cheeks and temples were strangely sunken. A dark ring surrounded her heavy blue eyes, and the flaxen hair that hung from beneath her old straw bonnet was thin 
and matted together in fantastic meshes which proclaimed that it had seldom been disturbed by either comb or shears i smilingly approached her and her blue lips parted as though to return the smile but at the same time her brow involuntarily contracted and the eyes which she raised to mine expressed habitual fear and distrust i patted the child on the shoulder and drew ellen towards the window that we might converse unheard ellen was evidently excited and at a loss for words who is your little friend asked i i do not know that is you see who she is a beggar and you have been looking out for a beggar to befriend for some time replied i laughing but not unkindly no yes that is to say accident threw this child in my way would the same accident have induced you to take an as much interest in her two months ago no but my views are changed this was exactly what i desired to make ellen realize i was now ready to hear the history of her adventures i was going to look for mother in her room began ellen you know she keeps in the basement and therefore i was obliged to pass the kitchen i heard betty speaking very loudly and angrily to somebody and the voice of a child replying in supplicating tones betty told the child that they did not keep coal victuals to pamper beggars brats and that if she did not make herself scarce somebody would show her the way out in double quick time and in a new fashion the child still lingered and i was strongly inclined to enter the kitchen but to tell the truth miss catherine betty is a great scold and i did not like to come in her way i went into mother's room thinking of the child and in a few minutes i heard the door close after her i ran out and found her sitting sobbing upon the cold stone steps with an empty basket by her side i looked round and nobody was near i questioned her and she told me that she had been travelling about all morning to gather cold victuals for her mother and her old grandmother and her blind father and that she had not even obtained a crust of bread she gave me such a pitiful description of her family's condition that i thought if her story was true that 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 you might render them some assistance and thus render yourself happy i thought continued ellen without noticing my interruption that i would bring the child to you and ask your advice so i went back into the house and put on my hat and took up your purse added i pointing to the little green net purse in ellen's hand a very unusual appendage to her walking attire ellen looked half inclined to burst into tears and i felt that my jest though well-intentioned was inappropriate if not cruel pardon me dearest ellen said i my ill-timed pleasantry is not an evidence of want of feeling and to prove to you that it is not i will tell you what we must do this child's story may be true and it is possible that it may be false if false it has been taught to her by some older person who makes begging a profession 
we should do the child a lasting injury by making her a gainer through falsehood and indiscriminate almsgiving is always dangerous we will therefore accompany her home and inquire into the real condition of her family that is just what i expected of you cried ellen delightedly i was afraid to go myself and i knew how kind you were we had no time to lose for our winter afternoons are but short my warm cloak was soon wrapped about me my hat on my head and in a few more minutes ellen and i were following our young guide through the streets a heavy snow had fallen and the winter was piercingly cold it made me shiver to see that child tottering with naked feet over the frozen snow she led us through several narrow winding streets principally remarkable for their accumulated filth the wretched appearance of the domiciles and various odors that almost overpowered us as we passed along we encountered troops of half-naked dirty children throwing snowballs sliding on the frozen gutters screaming and fighting with one another herds of ruffian-like men smoking on the steps of numerous grog shops that lined the road and now and then the sound of an oath reached our ears there were women too half clad and the impressive want and vice strongly stamped upon their hardened features the appearance of all alike denoted the most squalid poverty the most abject degradation the glances of these people more than once alarmed us for we seemed moving among a different order of beings i took the precaution to read the names of the streets which we traversed for many of them i had never before visited at last our young guide stopped and looked if we were following her we quickened our steps and she disappeared in a dark and narrow alley through which we tremblingly threaded our way the alley led to a wooden back building in a most dilapidated condition we followed the child up a flight of decaying stairs that cracked beneath our feet and found ourselves under a long shed hung with clotheslines these lines were covered with every description of rag that could be made to assume the shape of a garment the child pushed open a door which i had not at first perceived and we entered into a small close apartment from which the surrounding buildings excluded every ray of the sun's reviving light the room was so dark that for a few moments my eyes unaccustomed to the sombre shade took no note of its occupants mother here's ladies said the child and a woman whose back was towards us while she bent over her wash-tub turned round and after a look of surprise gravely curtsied to us and called out dan dan give your chair to the ladies these words were addressed to a man apparently in the prime of life who was sitting upon one of the only chairs which the room contained his hands were stretched upon either knee and his head rested upon his bosom as though he was in a state of half stupor or sleep his limbs were lusty and well proportioned and his ruddy countenance showed no traces of illness he raised his head when the woman spoke and looked towards the door by which we entered but i marked that his dull grey eyes did not exactly rest upon us 
and that as he handed the rickety chair he seemed uncertain where it should be placed i walked forward and took the chair he retreated at my approach stretching out his hands to feel for the wall against which he leaned himself ellen had taken her seat upon the other uninviting chair and while the woman was wiping her hands upon the corner of her apron i glanced around the room in one corner lay a heap of chips shavings and bits of decayed wood piled up against the wall the fire on the bare hearth if dying embers embedded in ashes could be called a fire was i perceived entirely composed of these chips and remnants of old window frames boxes bits of sticks and similar substitutes for fuel in another corner lay several pots and kettles in rather close contact with various articles of clothing a table which evidently served as dresser dining and ironing table was covered with earthen plates an iron or two a candlestick several bottles that appeared to contain medicines a basin and pitcher and in fact the greater portion of the cooking and other utensils all huddled together old hats paper and rags took the place of window panes and effectively obviated all necessity for curtains very near the window stood a cot and above the scanty and tattered covering which was carelessly flung over it peered out the yellow and withered face of a very old woman a straw bed lay on the floor but this uninviting couch was empty although unmade the wash-tub stood on a rough plank supported by two old kegs that enabled it to perform the offices of a bench beside it sat an infant little more than a year old playing with a parcel of stones and sticks that were strewn at its feet the appearance of this famished-looking babe shocked us as well it might the wretched little creature's limbs seemed to be dropping from their sockets its tendril-like arms were hardly thicker than one of my fingers and the shriveled flesh hung in wrinkled bags about them the sharp bones of its ghostly little face protruded like those of an aged person and its large black eyes seemed to be starting from its head the child gave a low cry at our appearance and the woman who had first addressed us seated herself upon the foot of the bed and took the infant in her arms i then remarked the child's seat which had shown that maternal tenderness had called forth the ingenuity even of these wretched creatures the lid had been removed from an old candle box and a piece of rag carpet cut in strips was carefully nailed in its place the carpet which yielded even to the light weight of the child made a more comfortable seat than a cushioned chair and several wisps of straw wound round one of the kegs formed a support for the infant's tender shoulders ellen and i hardly seated ourselves when the querulous voice of the old woman in the bed cried out who's there who's there nancy some ladies who come home with netta replied the woman whose appearance i forgot to say was much less slatternly than i expected to find in the abode of so much want we don't want no ladies here coming to preach to us while we be starving what did the grand folks ever do for us with their fine talk all their palaverin never paid the price of a mouthful of meat 
hush hush mother whispered the woman and after adjusting the bedclothes to conceal their rents she turned to us and said in an apologizing tone she is very ill has she been ill long questioned i it's three months on new year's day she's been out of bed it's the cold and bad victuals did it and mayhap a fever she took have you no physician bless you yes ma'am the doctor from the dispensary came once or twice but there's no good in doctors it's only suffer the more he made her with all his nasty apothecary stuff and not a whit of good did he do her or the child neither and then he said it was nothing but years pressing upon mother and that she was doing well enough and you have no means of taking care of her faith and it's just that same it's a year and more since my old man here lost the use of his eyes and it took some sort of pains in his head and all over him the rheumatics they call it and he's never been a bit of good and done a turn since at first i went out amongst the neighbors and got a job here and there and dan minded the baby and waited on mother and netta netta's the little girl went out for coal victuals and to pick up chips and rubbish from the carpenter's shops and from the houses that were getting pulled down and when i came home at night i sat up and did washing and put out all rights but bobby took sick and not one would he quit crying with but myself and the old man grew worse and mother wasn't able to mind them so i had to bide at home i tried to get washing or sewing but ladies folks won't employ the likes of us and all i get to do is some odd pieces to wash for the neighbors and sometimes they pay me a shilling or two and sometimes they haven't got it to pay and my shawl and best gown and dan's coat and even the bedclothes went one by one to the pawnbrokers and if it hadn't have for been for billy and netta the soup and the potatoes netta brought for us from the almshouse there's no knowing what would have become of us while the woman was speaking the infant on her lap every once in a while raised its shriveled hand and patted her cheek and looking in her face put up its lips to kiss her and she more than once paused in the midst of her narration and with moistened eyes gave the sought-for kiss and the child quietly nestled its head on her bosom as though contented with this token of remembrance but at short intervals it uttered a low half-moan most piteous to hear netta had crept up to the fire and thrown on a handful of shavings and was sitting doubled up upon the hearth regardless of soot or ashes the husband was still leaning against the wall apparently listening to what was said but his open expressionless eyes imparted a vacant look to his countenance which rendered his thoughts difficult of perusal the old grand dame had risen up in her bed and sat staring at us with very unloving glances you have doubtless seen better days said i to the woman ay and that, that i have nor never thought to see the likes of these but god knows what's coming and it's a stop back that can bear all its burdens 
It's from the county Longford we come, and Dan had a shop, and a kind of grocer shop there, and sold spirits, and did a thriving business, and John McClure, that's my sister's husband, was his partner. And John was a light man, and never kept long to anything, and he did the shabby thing. One day he said he was going to see his wife in the country, and unbeknownst to Dan, he drew for all the money that Dan had in the bank, and he took every rag that he could lay his hands upon away with him. And where he went, nobody knows, but it broke our business up, and the sister, she died, and sure it was with a heavy heart that killed her and nothing less. The poor creature stopped and wiped her eyes with her apron, and Dan turned his face to the wall that his irrepressible emotion might be concealed from us. And we had the four children and mother to take care of, continued the woman, and we heard the neighbors tell what a fine place America was and how folks prospered there, and that there was plenty of living for all. So we sold everything to get passage, money, and came over, and... And sure we found it was lies they were telling, for the place wasn't a bit better than Ireland, nor half so good. For potatoes bent so cheap, and as for getting work, it wasn't easy for a stranger. Two of the children took sick, and we buried them both, for I don't think the air agreed with them so well as in the old country. Then this little one came to take their place, and soon after Dan lost his sight, and troubles came by the bushel full. Surely you have some medical advice for your husband? Sure, and we have, but where's the good in it? He went to some great eye doctor here, I can't call to mind his name just now, and he gave him a little bottle, not larger than your finger, full of stuff to bathe his eye with, and then made him pay a dollar, the very last he had for it. And when he went again, the doctor up and told him that he must bring him five dollars the next time, and that he couldn't even talk to him till he had done that same. So Dan went away and never went back, for where was he to get the five dollars? And then when he got so bad that he couldn't see it all, somebody told him that it was to the dispensary that he must go, and he hardly was able to stir with the pain in his limb. "'Twas I that took him to the dispensary myself, and the doctor talked kind enough to him, and gave him medicine and washes for his eyes. And so now I take him there every Saturday. But I never saw any good come out of doctrine.' and Dan's as blind as a bat, though he don't look it, and ever will be, unless the Lord himself helps him. And we must hope that he will, I replied, but as he ever helps those who help themselves, we must make use of every means placed in our power too. Now she's at it, shrieked out the old woman from the bed. I knew it. She's going to preach just like all the other fine ladies, and go away without giving us anything to fill our mouths with but her fine palavering. I know um I thought it best not at present to notice the remarks of the old woman, and continued my conversation with her daughter, by inquiring if she had any other children. Troth and I have, and a treasure of a boy he is, 
well, what could we have done without Billy? Billy was my first, and, baitin' a few odd ways, a better boy never saw the light, a blessing on him. If it wasn't for Billy, it starved we'd all have been, and that long since. What does Billy do to support you? asked I. Before my question could be answered, our attention was diverted by the sound of hasty steps ascending the stairs. In another moment, the door was flung open, and a ragged urchin of about eleven years of age rushed into the room. He was a stout, bold-looking little fellow, and carried a bundle of cheap publications, wrapped in a coarse piece of leather under his arm. One eye was so much swollen and discolored that the ball was hardly visible, and blood was streaming through the hand which he held to his forehead. He stopped suddenly on beholding us, as though surprised, and for a moment bewildered. "'Billy!' exclaimed his mother. "'What has happened to ye?' I was astonished that her tone expressed so little alarm. I supposed that she was too much accustomed to similar incidents to be much affected by them. "'Mark did it,' replied the boy, recovering himself. "'Just be after tying a rag around it, mother, will ye?' Don't stand, for I want to be off like a shot with these here books, or I shall be getting another before I'm a day older. I shouldn't have come home at all, at all, but the blood wouldn't hold up, and I couldn't do much business with such a pickle. The woman instantly commenced wiping, not washing, away the blood from her son's head and face, and prepared to bind up the wound with an old rag, strongly resembling a dishcloth. Her only question, which she asked in a perfectly composed tone, was, "'What was Mark after doing to you?' "'Why, he was a-flogging me, sure, for not having sold all my books, "'and such lighting he was kindling out, out of all these here two eyes was a caution, "'as the Yankee boys say. "'Then I was trying to get clear of him, and he knocked me against a lamp-post and broke my head. "'The bigger's brat!' growled the old grandmother. "'It's what he's always doing to you, my jewel. Bad luck to him, and to you for being such a crazy loon. "'And good luck to you, Granny, and may neither of our wishes hit,' replied the boy with his humorous quickness. "'I felt desirous of knowing something more about this stout-hearted, saucy little fellow,' and approaching him to examine his wound, I ask, And who is Mark, my little boy? Mark? Lord a mercy, replied he, looking wonderingly into my face. Don't you know Mark? Mark the smasher, to be sure. It's he, I mean. And what is a smasher? questioned I. The boy burst into a fit of laughter, ejaculating, Well, if she ain't a green one! The mother undertook to answer my question, and gave the following, not very lucid, definition of a smasher, the smashers being a class of the community with whom I was until then unacquainted. Why, Mark's a smasher, said she, and they call them smashers, you know, because they smashes the boys when they don't do their duty. Mark was a newspaper boy himself whiles ago, but the luck went with him, and now he's got a stand, and Mark buys a whole heap of them books that Billy's a-carrying, 
and Marquis got a whole lot of the boys, and he give every mother's son of them so many books to sell in a day, and then at night he pays em two shillings for the job, and if they don't contrive to sell all the books, he gives em a floggin', and half kills em sometimes, and then if people buys all the boys' books early enough in the day, the boy goes and buys books for themselves, and they sell em on their own hook, and they makes a profit of their own. And are there more smashers than Mark? asked I. Lord bless you, yes, ma'am, a sight more, but Mark's the greatest smasher of them all, and has made a power of money, and he's got a house all of his own, and he's got a cab, and he's... Mark's the smasher for my money, cried the boy enthusiastically. He can lick anything! or anybody said i somewhat inclined to correct the young burkwinder's phraseology i say he can lick anything replied billy emphatically nothing could stand before him he'd give a boy a knock that'd send him through the floor like smoke and leave nothing of him but a grease spot mocks the smasher for me he keeps the corners clear of loafers I began to be interested in Mark and his subjects, and, turning to the mother, inquired, What does he mean by keeping the corners clear? Well, you see, ma'am, said she, with a smile almost of pity of my ignorance, you see, the smashers give every boy his corner about the streets, or his post on the docks, and if another boy comes and tries to sell his books or papers on that corner, the two gets into a fight. And if the one that place belongs to can't lick the other, he goes to his smasher, and he comes and smashes the boy, so that he never put his spoon in that mass again. But what right has one boy to monopolize a corner and keep off the other boy? He can't purchase the right, can he? Lord bless you, no, exclaimed the mother. It's the might that makes the right. His smasher gives it to him and tells him to stand there. And so it's his, and nobody can gainsay him, unless he's got a stouter fist, and then the stronger gets it. Billy, from the moment he had discovered my ignorance, had regarded me with an air of superiority and ineffable disdain, which his ragged coat and gashed head and swollen eye rendered supremely ridiculous. He now exclaimed with a knowing shake of his head, Your mother don't know you're out, does she? I'm a-thinking you'd better be going home. And so thought I, for the daylight was fast fading away. I turned to Ellen and found her intently examining the books which Billy had laid upon the bed. I also glanced at the titles and read, the Mysteries of Paris by Eugene Sue, Matilda, Arthur, Balzac's Tales, and etc. Billy now snatched up his books and, telling his mother that he had all those to sell before he could come home tonight, and without taking any further notice of Ellen or myself, made his exit as unceremoniously as he had entered. I whispered to Ellen that it was time for us to take our leave. Ellen instantly drew out her purse and silently emptied its contents into the hand of the mother. Hers was true generosity, true charity, for she gave the widow's might, not of her abundance, but all she had. But though her generosity was genuine, it was not wise. 
and this I did not hesitate to tell her. The poor are seldom economical, and had she supplied the wants of these people by a judicious expenditure, she might have done them more good than placing at their own disposal double the amount of money she now bestowed. The old grandam's eyes sparkled as she heard the jingling of silver, and she muttered, then it's a jewel she is, and no shame to a poor broken Mac, the Lord lover. The mother, on receiving this money, overpowered Ellen with a true Irish superfluity of thanks. Ellen blushed and knew not how to answer or which way to turn, and only hid her confusion by attempting to play with the baby. I addressed little Netta who was still crouching in the ashes, and told her to call the next day on Ellen, and that she should be supplied with coal victuals, for Ellen had already informed me that she intended to entreat her mother to place all the coal victuals at her disposal. The child promised to come, but her meager little face was lighted with no ray of joy. It seemed as though her blood was too completely frozen to glance through her veins with the quick flow of pleasure we took our leave promising that this should not be our last visit and were followed to the bottom of the steps by the grateful mother she blessed us with tears streaming down her cheeks and hugged her baby to her heart as though she were internally saying god has sent thee a friend a friend my little one once more in the street we found it much darker than we anticipated but Ellen was too engrossed with pleasant thoughts to experience the least fear, and I did not venture to suggest the possibility of our not reaching home in safety. Before we had walked a block, she suddenly pressed the arm, which was linked within hers, and exclaimed, Oh, Miss Catherine, if I could only diffuse happiness throughout such a wretched as that, I am sure I should never have the blue devils again. I never before felt such inexpressible pleasure as I do at this moment. What wonder that her pleasure was too deep and heartfelt for expression. She had, for the first time in her life, experienced the most exquisite of sensations, the interior joy which springs from the performance of a good deed, dictated by unselfish motives. We talked over our plans for the assistance of the poor family and Ellen said to me with more energy than I have ever seen her display, I must exert myself. I can never earn enough money by painting valentines in New Year's favors. Do you know that a thought struck me while we were there? But I am afraid to confide it to you, for you will laugh. If I promise only to smile, replied I, perhaps you will be encouraged to trust me. I remarked in looking over those books, continued Ellen, that they were primarily translations from French and German. Now, dear Miss Catherine, I am a very tolerable French scholar, and I think I can write English correctly. Certainly the persons who make these translations must be remunerated in some manner. They must make some money, more than a person could earn by painting valentines. I think I could find some interesting French tale, and I know that I could easily make a tolerable translation. But then, how could I be sure of selling the translations when made? The most important part would be the most difficult. 
but you have so successfully aroused and cultivated my organ of hope that I am not inclined to despair anything. It is needless to tell you that I gave Ellen all necessary encouragement, for even should her project of selling the translation prove to be a castle in the air, the occupation thus afforded her mind would of itself be sufficiently beneficial to repay her for the exertion. We reached Mr. Mess in safety, but gave no account of our visit to the poor family. Mr. Merritt escorted me home at a late hour, but my brain had become so active that except for the soporific effect which the penning of these pages has had upon me, and which perhaps the reading of them will have upon you, I should not have slept till morning. End of chapter 11